We conclude our mini carry-on season by meeting someone who starred in eight of the films, probably most famously as Major Shorthouse in Carry On Up the Kyber. He was also in Doctor, Camping, Loving, Henry, At Your Convenience, England and Follow That Camel. But what did Julian Holloway really think about the carry-ons? He's been telling Ashley. It's distinct nostalgia and we're delighted to welcome Julian Holloway as part of our season a triple bill as it were of, of shows in which we're interviewing various uh, carry-on favorites so we've got jackie piper we've also got richard o'callaghan we're talking to as well now julian we want to talk generally about your career as a whole but let's just start off with the carry-ons briefly first of all you were actually in eight of them um between 1967 and 1976 you're a you're a stalwart of the carry-ons really aren't you I suppose so. It's not something. <laughs> it's not something that I hold particularly dear, <laughs> uh, but it's nonetheless a reality, uh, and uh, I have to plead guilty on all counts. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll talk about them uh, in a moment. We'll actually go through the different um, carry-ons and whatever. But before we do, um, you're from. Um, a showbiz background in terms of your family, aren't you? Correct. I mean, most, I mean, people who are listening to this will probably know, but for others who don't know, who was your famous dad? My father was Stanley Holloway, who was a stalwart of Ealing comedies before achieving his uh, mid to late life success in My Fair Lady, which was at the age when most people are retiring... He did My Fair Lady, which gave his career and life a tremendous boost. Because over a six-year period, he did the show on Broadway, the show in London, and the movie. And so he started off uh, doing My Fair Lady when he was 66 and finished the movie when he was 72. It just paints a picture of what it was like as a child growing up in that family and with, with your dad, what was your dad's, what was your dad's influence on you? Um, I was really, uh, my mother was the driving force in the family uh, because I think uh, having seen a lot of show business families subsequently uh, growing up, uh, they tend to be career-obsessed. And, I mean, my dad was certainly one who defined opening the fridge door, the light goes on, and he did 20 minutes. So, plus the fact, I mean, when I was born, he was 54. So, in a lot of respects, it was it was like having a grandfather rather than a father. Yeah, no, I can understand that. Yeah, much older, much older dad in, in that sense. So, so what got you into the entertainment side of things? Was it my mother? Your mother did. Yeah, right. Okay, okay. <laughs> she had been she had been cut off in her prime when she married my dad uh, because she had been uh, an embryonic performer herself, and I think still felt uh, that there was quite a bit to prove and then therefore did it through my eyes as opposed to hers and in those days 
dissent was not a popular trait as it is today. And whether you liked it or not, you didn't argue with the, the parental request. So you, you kind of went quietly, as it were. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, we say you went quietly. Would you? Were you sort of, um, you know, was it something you were genuinely interested in, or would you? Did you? Did you hold ambitions of doing other things? I'm, I never had the chance. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I remember at the age of twelve going out from from boarding school to New York, and. Um, my mother informed me that I had been enrolled for tap dancing class, which was not something I particularly had in mind. Uh, so, as I say, in those days, you just kind of went along with it. Um, and it was therefore assumed that that would be what you would do. So, uh, I mean, whether or not I was reticent, uh, I mean, I I think the thing that that definitely struck me immediately was that I did not want to go into the world of musical comedy, which was very much his uh, path. And uh, I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, then leave me the hell alone. <laughs> Let me find my own way. Because I think also the thing is that uh when you are the product of a of a show business family as far as everybody else is concerned because you have not yet established what you do it is assumed that you repeat the parents path uh whether you like it or not it's just it's an assumption and it takes a while to find your own feet yeah, no, absolutely. I understand that. And it, it's quite, it gets quite irritating, doesn't it, to be completely compared with them totally, you know, throughout your career, um, which is, you know, quite irritating. Just briefly, before we go on and talk about, you know, how your, the start of your career and film and TV and all the rest of it. Um, when you look back, I was watching, I was watching My Fire Lady over, over Christmas, actually. And, um, it's, it's, a, I mean, quite a lot of those, those musical films are, just masterpieces, aren't they? In terms of the way they were made, in terms of they were they're masterpieces in the way they were made, in terms of the 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 the, the technic you know the tech the technicolor the you know you watch it and you think actually this could be, could have been made yesterday. Okay, the, the 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 attitudes are slightly different. Obviously, it would have been done differently editorial, all that kind of thing. But actually, just the quality of them. I mean, I watched I watched um, uh, West Side Story, the old you know the old version recently as well, several times. And again, there's some there's something about those films, you know. Um, just reflect on that. It, it, a lot of work went into it, didn't it? I was <clears throat> I was never a great fan of the film of My Fair Lady. I I have to say that um, I thought the show was much more interesting. The film, you see, that one of the problems with the movie was that they Warner Brothers paid. $5 million for the rights, which in 1956 was an enormous amount of money. I mean, it's an enormous amount of money now if you haven't got it. <laughs> but, uh, but then, I mean, it was a record uh, sum of money paid 
for the right. So before they before they put uh, one foot of film in the camera, they're they're five million <laughs> down the tubes immediately. So therefore, the film was made on very strict guidelines on the back lot at Warner Brothers. Whereas, and so therefore, I always felt it it had a rather theatrical look to it as opposed to a filmic look to it. Um, and obviously Audrey Hepburn was too old for the part. Uh, and whereas she was wonderful in the second half, in the first half, she left a bit to be desired. And I mean, I think the, the, the problem with that part is that Generally speaking, you will find that whoever plays it does one half better than the other, but the two together is very difficult. And, and if you think back, Julie Andrews really was the only actress who played the part that made it her own. It's not, it's not a part that creates stars or has created stars since. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But not, nonetheless, some fantastic music in there. And a oh, really... the score is second to none. Looking at your career then, so by the time you were sort of, um, well, I don't know, what would you have been? I'm just looking at your the list I've found on the internet, and obviously that may be wrong, so you can correct me. But it, it, you were starting to make films and TV programs around about 1961 so you must have been about what 17 ish 16 17 yeah 16, 17. i was born in 1944 so was that your was that so those early things i think you did an avengers didn't you in 61 and um that was i did uh, uh what they now call a gap year i um did extra work and the odd line here and there yeah for a year before going to RADA. So you did you did the Avengers and you also did apparently Dentist on the Job. But just looking back at that that initial stage, what do you remember about those uh, about you know getting involved in those things right at the very beginning? Uh, well, what what I remember about Dentist on the Job was it it had originally it was originally going to be played by a young actor called David Hemmings. Uh, and for some reason or another, he couldn't do it. And I, I was called up by an agent at the 11th hour, can you get to Shepparton and do this one line? Uh, so I didn't have to audition for it. It was a question of uh, desperation. <laughs> and, and I was finished by lunchtime. <laughs> so you don't remember meeting many people on that set then? I mean, obviously there were quite a few big names in that, weren't there? There was Bob, Bob and uh, Ronnie Stevens and various various people. I mean, I, I worked with Bob much later, um, who was lovely and a really, really nice man. I liked him a lot. Um, but at that time, uh, it was Kick, Bollock and Scramble Productions. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, we we just uh, delivered, excuse me, sir, you're wanted on the phone, which was the, the one line. And um, as I say, it was done. Take one, print, good night. 
I think he's been shown a few times on talking pictures actually recently. Uh, Denston, yeah. And I, I'm just reading about it actually. I didn't realise I've got I've got an interview with this lady, a very last interview which I've not I've not played out yet. Um, it was um, it was co-written by Hazel Adair. Who, of course, was um, Crossroads. Crossroads creator, yeah. <laughs> and he also starred Kenneth Connor, and Charles Hawtrey was in there, and Shirley Eaton, and a few others. So it was um, it was a for a forerunner to the Carry Ons in a way, wasn't it? In that sense. Well, no, I think it was actually because if you remember, Bob Monkhouse was in the first Carry On Carry On Sergeant, and and this was an an attempt to do an opposing series of movies and they only did two and that was that yeah no absolutely sorry i'm getting it wrong because we're talking about the early 60s of carry on started in the 50s didn't they so there was yeah it was dentist on the job and dentist in the chair very very original titles <laughs> so so fantastic and so what about the avengers what do you remember about your uh, debut on the avengers at the time it used to be transmitted live to one part of England and very, very early days of video recording to the rest of the country. And uh, this particular episode had uh, various animals in it who were all heavily subdued. They'd either been given a shot of Valium or were in a state of shock about how little money they were being paid. And... The opening shot was of a chimpanzee and a little person. And the idea was that the chimpanzee was on the shoulders of the little person. They then walked through the shot and the show began. So because it was, as I say, live, uh, the floor manager shouts 30-second studio, at which point the chimpanzee evacuated its bowels all over the little person and ran amok. At which point the floor manager managed to shout out the immortal line, catch that chimp, clean off the dwarf. And this poor little fellow was standing there dripping in chimp poo Makeup came in with bags of Kleenex and everything else. The chimp is now swinging from gantries, making very peculiar noises. Anyway, they managed to get the chimp back and on the clean shoulders of the little person within the 30 seconds and the show started. But that was the first example of stage fright I've ever seen. And what did you play in that? I was in a crowd, a member of the, right, okay. the crowd. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was your that was your foray into the first foray into the into the showbiz world. Tell us a bit about Rada. Tell about your experience of Rada. Do you do you enjoy it? Yes. Well, I mean, the thing was with Rada, it was almost like a finishing school, particularly. Uh, if, like me, you had been to a, a, an all-male boarding school, suddenly there are girls, you know, which was a wonderful experience. And um, uh, But, I mean, it was, it was a rich seam of talent at, at drama school at that time uh, because the fledgling Ian McShane, John Hurt, John Alderton, June Ritchie, 
you know, there were there were a lot of people that came out and and soon had very very good careers. Did you enjoy that experience? Of oh, riding? very much so. Obviously, you know, people get into acting in lots of lots of different ways now, and um, things have changed massively. We know that. Um, obviously, a lot of people did things through local rep, didn't they, in different parts of the country back in the day? Well, you see, in, in a way, now. it was you served your apprenticeship by going into rep. Now there are no reps left anymore. And, and also in those days, uh, you went to drama school to be trained for the theatre. Most kids now who go to drama school have no interest in doing the theatre whatsoever uh, because they go straight on to television. Uh, but there was, a, there was a great grounding in the repertory system. I mean, there were there was some very, very good reps, but also some very, very bad reps. So you could, it would work both ways in that you could, it, depending on where you went, you could be, you could learn a lot about what to do. And if you were in a bad rep, you learned a lot about what not to do. And Ashley's distinct nostalgia chat with Carry On star Julian Holloway will continue in a few minutes. Distinct drama. Fresh and original. Available now on Distinct Nostalgia, a trilogy of comedy dramas by Carl Chetty, starting with Soft Centres. When I think of how I've wasted my life here. Starring Sir Derek Jacobi as Frankie. Placing handmade soft centres and nut clusters into poncy dwarf coffins is hardly an achievement. And Joanna Lumley as Millicent. Oh, Frankie's well past this game. He's been here 30-odd years. He'll be carried out in a box. (laughs) It's probably a gold chockey box with red bows and ribbons. And the story continues in Hard Centres. Well, I'm supposed to be retired, you know, but I'm back in the basement in my own little chockey grotto. (laughs) Starring Sir Derek Jacobi as Frankie and Imelda Staunton as Millicent. I hear liking you hat, sis. I'll slap you in a minute, you cheeky <laughs> run. You know it is, Matt, it's my hair. Sebastian, just done it. Incidentally... Yes, and what's that dirty look for? Your senorita's gone, but not forgotten. My senorita... What did you do to her? Show her your erogenous zone. And we conclude with Dark Centres, starring Sir Derek Jacobi as Frankie... And June Brown as Millicent. Is there something going on between you two? Chant to be a fine thing, but I'm working on it. <laughs> Helen Lederer as Mrs Hamilton. So he's given someone a box of hard centres instead of soft centres. So what? That's what dentists are for. And Christopher Ryan as Mr Hamilton. Things are already at half cock. My tinnitus is getting worse, and plus I can't sprint for a taxi anymore without wheezing and drawing on my inhaler. So that's soft centres, hard centres, and dark centres. By Carl Chetty. Available only on Distinct Nostalgia, wherever you get your podcasts. If nobody was told what you were meant to do, if there weren't any rules, then we would be living in a totally different format. A brand new podcast 
featuring rarely heard voices from across the UK and around the world. Bisexuality is not really understood because people have biphobic tendencies. And the second you mention bisexual, just their ears pick up. Contemporary conversations around bisexuality. Oh, well, you're still confused, right? No, I'm not confused. We are questioned so much more than people when they come out as straight or gay. It's intense pressure of like, am I sure? You're literally like monitoring yourself. Every episode will include a very personal story as we try to paint a real picture of bisexual Britain. This is Bisexual Brunch. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. You sort of hit the ground running, really, within the first few years. You were in, you were in quite a few films. You, I mean, some of them were on uncredited parts and things like that, but you were doing films regularly, weren't you, at that point? Yes. Um, I mean, the thing was that um, certainly when I left drama school, there was a, a, a palpable uh, industry because uh, in addition to A films, there were also a lot of B movies. So... When you went to the cinema, there was a programme of a second feature, a first feature, a news item, an an episode of Look at Life, (laughs) and that was it, you know? But that was soon to end, and really by the end of the 60s, uh, our film industry had more or less collapsed. Yeah, it's very sad, isn't it? Because there was so many. I mean, I watch, uh, I do watch talking. We mentioned talking pictures earlier. On, I do watch talking pictures quite a lot, and there were some actors who were really kept going by the the the, the you know the last em, you know the last bits of the of the film industry. You know, when you think about somebody like Kenneth Cope. He was on film after film after film after film. Yeah. He, you know, he's everywhere, prolific, really. Um, and people like Sam Kidd were everywhere as well. You know what I mean? Yes. So, and uh, and you were in a fair few too. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean because it was it was uh, it was a good time, you know. And it, it, at that time, uh, you took it for granted that there was a movie on the doorstep. Sort of subsequently into the seventies and eighties, if your agent called up and said there's a film, it was like winning the lottery. We'll be back after a quick break. You still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on. It, it only takes structure. And, and, you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Know what I mean? So do do your homies uh got a role in your, in your little, you mean? Yeah, yeah. We all, we all artists over here, man. I'm trying, all right? Yeah, I'm trying, yeah. I'm trying, I'm trying to get them on there. Yeah. yeah. Me, me, me. Yo, look, 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 look. We all artists, man. We go, you feel me? We going to have this, like... Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kyle, we be like, I don't know, we play, we play with this <laughs> shit right now. I gotta lie, we play with this shit right now for for. Oh, I gotta lie, don't play with it. Play with it. No. Take that shit serious. Absolutely, but of course, cinema changed, didn't it as well? Because I remember I I was a kid in the seventies, and I remember f- my mom would always say about, oh, you know, when she was in the fifties, she'd go to the movies and all the rest of it. And I remember it being the seventies being a real dip in cinema. Nobody really want, went there for a long time. And then Star Wars came and everyone started going back to the movies again. So it was a sort of TV had taken over for a while, hadn't it? That was that was what had happened. So what was it what was it like? Um 
on the set of well just generally in terms of doing making films back in back in the day you know what was it because some of these films i watched and they're on talking pictures whether black and white films some of them have they look you know i know some of the b1 b movies aren't fantastic whatever in terms of content but they look very well made you know the costumes are great everything you know what just give us a, a, an idea of what it was like to be a film actor at that time well, as I say, you 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 almost took it for granted, um, and uh, it, as you said, I mean, in the seventies, when Star Wars and Jaws hit, it suddenly the cinema suddenly became an event syndrome. Uh, therefore, they were all the American companies were looking for block summer blockbusters. Um, and you know when when Jaws, Jaws really changed the whole face of movies, because for the first time, that had taken a hundred million dollars in its opening run, and it was like an express train, just collecting money wherever it went. Yeah, absolutely. I went to see it. Uh, my dad took it to see it two or three times, and every single time, I fell asleep. <laughs> he, he was he was really into it, but I, but I loved but I loved um, Bambi. I was really into Bambi. It was it said something about me, I think. But um, but yeah, um, okay. So let's look at those. Let's look at the films in the sixties. Obviously, you know, we'll talk about the Carry Ons in a second. But before that, there were very. I mean, there were several films, one after the other that you were in. You were, you know, there's Hard Day's Night, uh, The Knack and How How to Get It, The Pleasure Girls, Catch Us If You Can, The Jokers. Do any of them stand out? Have you got any memories of any of those? Well, I mean, they were all they were all quite successful pictures. Uh, so, uh, but I mean, my contribution was negligible uh, at the time. But it was, you know, it was a learning curve, um, uh, and it was it was nice to be on those films. I mean, uh, I think probably of all that lot, nothing but the best. Uh, was a really good picture, uh, which had had been originally a television show, and then they adapted it for the big screen. Uh, and uh, if you remember, it basically revived the career of Denham Elliott, who was magnificent in it. Uh, and uh, having been rather sort of overlooked for a, a period of a few years, that gave him a second lease of life, and and he never looked back again. Really, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant action. Lots and lots and lots of different things, and obviously, you know, sadly, left us too early, didn't he? Um, so the carry-ons. Then the first one you were in was Follow That Camel. How did you get into the carry-ons? I mean, obviously, I know that all these films were being made, and you, know, you just mentioned that lots of different films were being made and whatever. But did you know much about them? Did, you know, were they? I mean, we get an impression now of them being huge, big, big things that were very popular, and obviously that's come over time. But at that particular time, was there as much sort of hype about them as as there is now? No, not at all. Uh, I mean, certainly they were not films that were at all regarded by any of one's peers. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the, the level of work, I mean, this is the thing that I always hark back to. 
is that I don't feel remotely proud of any of my contributions to those films because the level of work I always found was rather poor and they were very happy to accept second best. The scripts were uh, full of old jokes. I mean, there was a moment when Kenneth Williams said to me one day, I think we've played this scene before, uh, which indeed we had. Um, and uh, I mean, they were very, very lucky. Uh, Jerry Thomas and Peter Rogers were very, very lucky in falling upon this format, which uh, was completely accidental. And if you look at the kind of work they were doing before the carry-ons, it was not very good. Um, but uh, the, the nice thing about the films was that by and large, it was a very, very good, decent group of people who were fun, more or less all of them, a couple of exceptions, uh, who were lovely. So you used to look forward to going to work. Yeah, yeah. Well, Follow That Camel was a, a bit of a, a sort of... Um... They had obviously had quite a lot of uh, carry-ons had been going for quite a long time by that point. Well, ten certainly ten years. And follow that camel, uh, they brought in Phil Silvers, didn't they? Correct. Which was a bit controversial at the time, if I remember rightly. Well, I mean, the thing was, they were hoping to open up the American market, which those hopes were immediately dashed. <laughs> Because, I mean, Phil Silvers, who, I mean, Bilko was one of the great TV shows of all time, in my view. Um, and But by the time uh, Follow That Camel came along, Phil Silvers' sell-by date was looming large. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it was a, not a good script. He was used to working with the creme de la creme of American scriptwriters. I mean, the Bilko show created by a writer called Nat Hiking. Neil Simon used to work on the show. I mean, they had some seriously good writers. So to suddenly step down to Talbot Rothwell was, uh, I don't think he quite knew what had hit him. Yeah, and I, I'm just looking here on the on the the big the you know the 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 promotion follow that camel. They were really, you know, bigging up the fact that Bilko was joining the Carry On Legion. You know, to yeah. me, it was a, it was a big thing. And of course, this was a film that Sid wasn't in. Sid wasn't in this one. Sid had had a heart attack. Had he? Yeah. Um, because they had announced that the film was going on location to Morocco. This probably caused him to have a heart attack. But three weeks in Morocco suddenly became three days on Canberra Sands. Slight difference. <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely. It's one of the I, I like. I love the carry-ons. You know, I, I know what to expect. You, I've, I've grown up with them in the sense that they were constantly played when I was a kid in the 70s and whatever. But this one doesn't really do it for me. There's something about it that just doesn't feel right. I don't know what it was about Carry On. Uh, it's just not camera. very good. Well, there you go. <laughs> and you played, what did you play, play in it? A, a ticket inspector or something? or Ticket collector. Ticket collector, yeah. 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 
No, what happened was the reason uh, I was approached about that was that uh, previously I had had a recurring character on a sitcom called Pardon Expression, which was yes. Arthur Lowe's character that had been spun off from Coronation Street yeah, yeah. and given his own show. And as far as I was concerned, that generated a huge amount of work for me that show um and i was basically playing a moron uh, <laughs> but it did it did a lot of uh, a lot of good for me and um uh because i had known uh gerald thomas and peter rogers used to live in beaconsfield which was near where i grew up and i grew up in a place called penn in yeah. buckinghamshire yeah and um because my dad was always in and out of Pinewood and, and we used to socialize certainly with them. And they so they'd known me since I was a little boy. When, when uh, Pardon Expression came on, it just generated a, a phone call for them to say, oh, let's, who's, who's gonna play the ticket collector? Let's aim it at Holloway. And, and that sort of started the ball rolling, as it were. Yeah, what was Arthur Lowe like to work with? Fabulous. Yeah. Fabulous. Very, very sweet, dear man. That never gets repeated, does it? Never seen that repeated. I don't think yeah. it has been. No, no. It's available, it's available on DVD. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I think the reason it probably doesn't get repeated is it's in black and white. Yeah, and it was ITV, wasn't it? it was ITV did, did yeah. that? Yeah. yeah. So they, I mean, yeah, it's something that, um, I mean, Talking Pictures seem to now have got quite a lot of the rights to things like Upstairs, Downstairs and things like that. So you never know, they may end up repeating it. But I can't, because it's black and white, I can't see it being repeated on ITV3 or anything like that because they tend not to do that, you know, which is no. a shame. So, so when you, you, you know, you, you, you oh, I know you were only playing a small part, but. And, and you got to know them over time. But do you remember your first encounter with the main Carry On, carry on cast? Um, well, I mean, with, with um, Follow That Camel, I just had a scene with Angela Douglas. Yes. Who I knew slightly before uh, we did the, the shoot. So that, that was easy peas. Uh, very pleasant. She's great. Uh, that was that. Uh, then on the second one, which was Carry On Doctor, I think. Yeah, Simmons you played in that. Uh, I worked with Frankie Howard, who, again, I had known since I was little because he'd done a movie with my father called Jumping for Joy. Right. Uh, which is also on Talking Pictures. Yes. <laughs> we're, giving, we're giving Talking Pictures a great advert here. <laughs> I know. And um, anyway... So on that, uh, I basically worked with Frankie and my friend Valerie Van Ost. And it really wasn't until Kyber, which was the third one I did, uh, when we all kind of got together and, and I got to know Kenneth and Sid and Joan uh, and all that uh, lot. And you had a... 
uh, 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 so a bigger role in that of course you were major short house correct who was in it quite quite a bit and you i remember you, i mean we took um i did a radio wales program with robert ross you know robert ross and we took um valerie leon and angela douglas for a weekend at uh, on the foot of snowden basically to sort of get them remembering um you know uh, when carry on when Carry On came to Wales, Carry On Up the Kyber back in the night, and we managed to fix Angela up with the with the, the driver that had drove her around and all the rest of it. It's quite it's quite a sweet uh, little uh, little program actually. Um, but that one is often seen as one of the best, isn't it? The Carry On Up the Kyber. It's the one that. Well, it's the only often... one that managed to squeak into the BFI Top One Hundred at number ninety nine. <laughs> so what do you remember about that? Because of course this one again was one of the rare ones where they actually went out they went somewhere they went to wales for heaven's sake yes uh oh listen ashley i remember uh, unfortunately i remember far too much um but it was a very it was a very happy shoot it's unquestionably in my mind the best of the bunch uh because the dinner party scene is funny on any level um and uh and that's really what people remember about the movie the fact that we were on that sequence for almost a week uh and the food was iffy to start with on day one by the time there was bits of polystyrene and god knows what else floating about it's amazing none of us were poisoned <laughs> because we were not exactly protected <laughs> Where was that scene done? That was done back at, at Pinewood. At Pinewood, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you're right about, you were saying about things being repeated. Um, of course, Peter Butterworth, who has the famous line at the end saying, you know, they've, they've all gone mad, start raving mad. They're all mad, you know. Yeah, he, he does that again in, in Carry On Abroad when the... When, when the place is falling down, the, the hotel's falling down, he does exactly the same thing. He says something similar to that. So they were good at regurgitating. <laughs> so oh, yes. <laughs> Nothing was wasted. Um, that film, of course, was... Um, it was controversial in its own way, or would be now, because of the fact that, you know, people were blacked up and all those kind of things. Oh, yes. That kind of thing going on. Um, you know it wouldn't be made today in that sense, would it? But at the same time, it was actually, I remember there was one bit where Bernard Breslau talks about, he says something, he references something that's happening, was happening then, which was... That'll but, teach them to ban turbans on the buses. Yes. So it was acknowledging there was an issue. There was, you know, there was something going on, which I thought was quite interesting when you look back at it, which people... Yes, because, miss. I mean, otherwise they were not remotely socially conscious in their display of political incorrectness. <laughs> <laughs> and Ashley's distinct nostalgia chat with Carry On star Julian Holloway will continue in a few minutes. As well as amazing interviews just like the one you're listening to now, the Distinct Nostalgia podcast is also home to an epic radio quiz. Oh, I've never heard of it. Where listeners just like you go head-to-head -head on their favourite TV shows and films and put their general knowledge to the test. There's a bonus point if you can sing the theme tune, but I know you're not going to, are you? Skippy, 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 the bush kangaroo, he's all I can remember that. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that earns you a point. Yeah, I'll go for that. A brand new season of the Distinct Nostalgia Mind of the Month quiz is almost here, and it needs you. 
Prisoner cell block. Cell block B. Prisoner cell block H. Simply pick your favourite TV show or film and get in touch at distinctnostalgia.com or by messaging us on Twitter. Have a go at three British films. Just have a guess. Oh, Whistle Down the Wind, Carry On Up the Kyber. Um, no, this is rubbish. I'm sorry. No, I don't <laughs> know. <laughs> they're not bad attempts, actually. And the two leading minds from across the month compete head-to-head in the final for a coveted Distinct Nostalgia mug. It's almost like a trophy. The Distinct Nostalgia Mind of the Month quiz. Got there in the <laughs> End. Oh, that's amazing. They always are. <laughs> Just tell us a little bit about those main character, main, main actors. I mean, Kenneth, we know, was a real character. We hear lots of stories about Kenneth. Um, what What was your impression of some of those people? Charles Hawtrey, what was he like? Well, Charlie really, I mean, you see, one of the problems as far as the what I would call the the died in the wall regular cast was that those two that they, they would do two films a year. Uh, Wasn't it usually one in the spring or one in the autumn or something? Correct. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That for a lot of the cast was was it. Uh, I mean, Kenneth said to me very early on in Kyber, um, don't let the stigma of the carry-on surround you. You've got to get out because uh, you know what it's like in this country. People get pigeonholed very easily. And uh, it was not advantageous to be pigeonholed as a carry-on actor because, A, you didn't make any money doing it, and B, you were very unlikely to get any sort of interesting work offered. So it was a, it was not uh, remotely appealing on any level uh, for those kind of shows. And um, uh, Kenneth was absolutely right. But you see, Rogers always used to talk about the title being the star which was an easy way of saying no one's going to get rich on my watch. Well, I mean, he and Gerald Thomas both made considerable amounts of money. And, uh, you know, the, the, little did any of us know at the time that those films were going to be shown on television hundreds of times and we didn't get a cent no, absolutely. They're, they're shown every single time there's a bank holiday. ITV throws. Well, you see, ITV now own them. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So, um, I mean, when uh, we did a uh, a documentary about four or five years ago called Carry On uh, Forever, and uh, I was living, I was still living in America at the time, and. Um, they came over and, and uh, were with me for the best part of the day talking about each film. And uh, so I was as frank uh, with them as I'm being with you. Uh, but when the, when the documentary was shown, they didn't, they cut every single remark I'd made, which was negative. Uh, and then uh, 
got in touch with me afterwards to say, how did I like the show? And I said, I think I was very badly misrepresented. Um, I quite understand why you want every take to be positive, but it's not, it's not accurate. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, I, I, I get that because you know, well, anything that anybody does, you know, you, you, is, well, you, you've not been completely negative in the conversation, you know, the, the, the positives and negatives to everything, aren't they? So, no, that, that's interesting. So, I mean, you, you say that that sort, sort of, um, Kenneth said that you know you get typecast by the by these films, and um, and obviously some of the ones people like him and Charles. Um, were to an extent, although of course both of them had done. I mean, Charles Autry went back years and years. He'd done loads of things, hadn't he? He'd done... But he didn't do anything. He didn't do anything since after no. he started the carry-ons. That was it. That was it. That was it. And Kenneth carried on, sort of being basically. Obviously, he was known for the carry-ons, but then became more of a, a sort of a TV chap so personality, didn't he? More than anything after yes. that, in a way, um, which, which was interesting. So. Yeah, so there was Carry On Up the Kyber. And then, of course, the next one that was very successful, of course, the one that lots of people remember, um, you played a guy called Jim Tanner in Carry On Camping. Yeah. And again, you didn't go very far for that, did you? Camping and Kyber were number one and number two box office chants of 69, respectively. Yeah. Yeah, and again, you didn't go very far for it, did you? It was just around the, very close to the... The orchard, <laughs> the back of the Pinewood Studios. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, in the most unpleasant conditions imaginable, it was freezing cold, they were spraying the mud green. All the, all those things that you've heard are absolutely true. What was Jim Tanner's character? What was, what did you, what was Jim? Just remind me. He was the coach driver. Ah, uh, yes, of course, yes. And you see... Uh, the the part was infinitely bigger than it uh, emerged because uh, I had a love interest with Trisha Noble, which the whole thing ended up on the cutting room floor. It was, um, I mean, I was in a way quite glad that it did because the trouble with those, uh, the love interest in carry-on films is they're appallingly badly written and uh, uh, they're not remotely worth playing. Uh, plus the fact they had at one point, I mean, if you remember at the end of the film, they turn a goat on Joan Sims's mother. Yes. <laughs> well... The goat has not, up till that point, the goat has not made an appearance in the film, so it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. In in the original script, I uh, Trisha Noble is is cornered by this man-eating goat, and I have to save her from it. And it's, uh, I mean, real rubbish. But the fact that they left the goat in, <laughs> it's. You think, excuse me, where's this come from? Yeah, now you were in your films. You were in, or when you look back at the carry-ons, the the one the ones right at the beginning, you know, things like um, 
carry on sergeant, carry on cabbie, carry on cruising. They all had a certain style about them. There was sort of an, they're quite stylish actually in the way they were filmed, and there was a bit of sort of Ealing comedy esque kind of thing to them. You joined at a period when they were sort of starting to change a bit, weren't they? They were start, start to, they were starting to be a bit more bawdy in different ways. Did you notice that in the? In the time you were in, well, I mean, the, uh, unfortunately, the problem with with camping was that poor Barbara was subjected to revealing flesh for the first time because up until that point they had been seaside postcards, uh, and uh, with with sort of brief apologies to Donald McGill, but we had not had the full frontal. That's when the floodgates opened and. Uh, I mean, culminating in that quite dreadful carry-on England, I mean, which was really insultingly bad. Um, and, I mean, that was withdrawn after three days. Yeah, carry-on England was not the best. You're absolutely right. I wasn't keen... I was never keen on the, on the historic ones. I always found them uh, slightly... I didn't like carry-on cowboy, for example. That didn't like, I didn't like that one. The one I did like because I thought it, it captured a bit about the period um, that I was growing up in as a kid, and that was Carrying Out Your Convenience. I quite liked that one, which got a lot of criticism at the time, I think, because it was attacking the unions or whatever. It but didn't do well. No, no. But when I watched that, I think to myself, actually, there was something about that. There was something that added a bit of extra in that, um, as far as I was concerned. You played Roger. Who was Roger in that? I have no, I, uh, uh, that uh, I did a, a, as a favour, uncredited. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Um, now, you said that, uh, we mentioned there that, 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 you know, people didn't do things afterwards, but you did, didn't you? You've, you've carried on and done a lot of things, and you are in Ryan's Daughter in that period, you are in Young Winston. You did other things around that time. You managed to make a living at other films. So what were you doing that was different, do you think? Well, I think I probably had uh, more of a range than a lot of them. Um, and uh, I don't know, I was lucky. Yeah, and I suppose you hadn't, although you were in eight of them, and you're actually in eight, eight of the Carry On films, which is a big number, which I think is nearly as many as, as Barbara. I think Barbara Windsor was in 10, if I remember rightly. Um, but I suppose the parts you played were were varied, weren't they? A lot of the ones who came back each time tended to be playing very similar roles each time, didn't they? Well, yes. I mean, uh, you see, the thing was that um, uh, they... With a lot of them, they just kind of phoned it in <laughs> because they were, because Gerald Thomas was very undemanding, he never, for instance, called up or you, you never had any kind of dialogue before you started the film to say how you were going to play the part or what ideas you had. Uh, I mean, I remember on Carry On Loving, uh, I had worked out a whole scenario that I was going to be an American photographer. And so on my first day, I said to Gerald, said, what are you going to do? So I said, I think he's American. He said, oh, no, don't do that. <laughs> so you had to change on a dime, you know. 
because it was, but nothing had been pre-prepared, shall we say. So you had to have your wits about you. Yeah, and as you say, they were, they were thrown together. Was it was it one take generally, or a couple of takes? Two, yeah, one or two. So I'm just saying there that you went on to do lots of things. I mean, your list of credits in in television, film, and TV is huge. You've done tons and tons of things over the years, and then you went to and and you went and did lots of voiceover stuff in America for quite a long time. Well, I've done a lot here um, uh, first. Um, and um, I, I actually started my own voiceover agency here. And did you enjoy? Did you enjoy that side? That, that side of the act, you know, the the voiceover acting. And is oh yes, you enjoyed, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you a you don't have to look your best. Uh, b you make a, or you made a great deal of money. And uh, so, I mean, there's no question that for a, a, a period in this country, uh, I turned masses of work down in order to keep the voiceover machine well-oiled. And, of course, the great thing about doing voiceovers or radio or anything like that is, of course, you can play anybody, can't you, at the end of the day? Pretty much. That's the other thing about it. Um, so looking back then, as we draw things to a close, what you, you've been fairly mixed in your account of the, the carry-ons, which is fine and, and honest, which is great. What do you think they did for your career? You're going to say not a lot now, aren't you? But what do you think they did? What, do you lear what did you learn from being in them? Did you learn anything? What did you learn from being in them? Did you learn anything about anything? Yes, to try harder. <laughs> so I don't look back on it as a major event or any. It was it was a gig and a, a poorly paid one at that. <laughs> but what do you? And yeah, you're right because you know if 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 you got the royalties from the constant plays of them, um, you'd be doing very well. Yeah, no, I mean if we'd been doing those. In America, we'd have all made a great deal of money. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. But what is it then, finally, what is it do you think that is still enchanting about them to people? Because it's not just people of a certain age who remember them. You do get, you know, kids who still watch them. You get people in their 20s who rave about them. There is a cult following. What, what is it, do you think? Well, it doesn't require a tremendous amount of uh, brains, intelligence, a demand a demanding sense of humor it's easy easy watching is what it is julian that's lovely thank you very much indeed for talking to us it's brilliant thank you thank you ashley julian holloway speaking to ashley and concluding our mini carry-on season and you can catch up with Jackie Piper and Richard O'Callaghan by scrolling through the list of shows on the Distinct Nostalgia feed wherever you get your podcasts. Distinct Nostalgia is produced by MIM. And if you like what we do, then please consider supporting us on Patreon. Every penny helps us to make even more amazing content just for you. Go to distinctnostalgia.com and click on the donate button. Thank you. Distinct Nostalgia. More than a podcast.